0: The local social worker who dies the slow death of cancer. Children who go home to be abused by their parents. More specifically to today, the atrocities that happened on this day over 20 years ago that killed 2,996 souls. Atheist Richard Dawkins looks at this list and declares that our world has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Good morning. Welcome to the Vero Beach Church of Christ. We are continuing our sermon series, I Want to Believe, But. Looking at the nine major questions skeptics, atheists, your neighbors and co-workers have the reasons that they refuse to believe that a God rules our universe, that we are created, that Jesus truly is the Savior of the world. Today, we are going to be looking at that daunting question that I imagine has haunted every single one of you at some point in your life. How could God allow suffering to exist in his world? It's as if Tracy leaves me the easy things to talk about. For many, this is the bedrock of disbelief, the hinge that they cannot fully swing open. Today, what I want to do is we're going to start off by giving you a broad overview of three frameworks of suffering. Frameworks that you can adopt and have been adopted by every person who lives. We believe something about the world and we have to fit suffering into that equation. And then I want to expound on my bottom line for the rest of the morning. Here's my bottom line right here at the beginning. Whenever you leave this morning, I want you to clearly see why suffering is not the wrecking ball that tears Christianity down, but rather is the cornerstone in which painfully, brick by brick, it has always been built. Let's start with the... Three broad frameworks of suffering. Those three broad frameworks are, number one, suffering in a godless world. Number two, a detachment from suffering. And number three, suffering with hope. So looking at that first one, suffering in a godless world, for some, this actually appears to be a promising relief. Suffering happens. It's a reality of life. There's no reason to dig deeper, to find a deeper meaning or a deeper purpose or a deeper hope behind it. And at first, for many, this seems to be the most logical. Suffering, again, is a reality that we all experience. Find a way to deal with the life that's been given to you and do not expect a higher power to throw you a life raft at the end of all things. Stephen Hawking who suffered from debilitating motor neuron disease, believed this. He believed that we are mere machines that work optimally until we eventually don't any longer. And when speaking of the afterlife, he said, there is no afterlife. That is a fairy story for people who are afraid of the dark. So that framework... The framework of suffering in a godless world motivates what psychology and philosophical leaders will call humanism. Humanism. It is, at general, it is the belief that the human capacity and spirit to progress for creativity, for love, all of the things that make us human can function at their fullest without a divine interference. We are the greatest thing about us. There is nothing that we are attached to, and it is right there that the record skips a beat. That this bleak view of skepticism and atheism begins to go against the human experience. Because think it through just a couple of steps. If there is no true evil, if there is no true good, if these are all just figments of our imagination, why do we lament? Why do we weep if there is no standard for evil or wrong? If I can't base that off of any absolute truth? Another simple thought exercise is if we are simply the byproduct of an evolutionary chain of nothingness that is leading to nothingness, then why do I care about those who are outside of my tribe? The ones that if I help have no immediate benefit to my life if it is simply survival of the fittest. Now, we're not going to go into full details of all of that, but you don't also have to just hear it from me. You can hear it from atheist Simon Conway Morris, who believes in something, actually you'd probably call him an agnostic. He says this, Suppose that the moral structure, the ethical voice, this is what we're talking about, that, that thing embedded inside of us that seems to know good and wrong the endless yearning for a world made good are not fantasies of a deracinated ape, but rather are signposts to a deep reality in which our destiny might be involved. Atheism decapitates that hope, pushing it off as misplaced fear. You're just afraid of the nothingness that comes after death. You're just trying to hold on to any sliver of hope that you have. But again, that doesn't stick with the human experience, at least not mine. And removing meaning from the equation of suffering doesn't solve the riddle. It just simply unravels on itself. And so we look elsewhere. Many people move to the second framework, the framework of a detachment from suffering. Now, this is increasingly popular in Western circles, this framework. It's a pseudo-Christian principle. It's influenced by Buddhist worldviews. I've preached on this in length elsewhere, but here's a general sentiment of Buddhism or what many people are now redefining as free thinking is that Buddhism is a refuge from the bleakness of atheism without the structures of organized religion. I can just kind of feel and believe what I want I can collect it all in my bag, and I can plug and play as I see fit and as works best for my circumstances. Much of this framework, again, is rooted in the Buddhist story. If you're not familiar with that story, it goes something like this. A young prince has been lavished with luxuries by his father, the king. In fact, the father wanted to hide the realities of suffering and death that existed in the world. One day, the prince wanted to take his chariot out in the city. And so the king, his father, ordered all of the sick and all of the suffering and dying to be locked away in their homes, not to expose the prince to them. The story goes that the prince, through circumstances exposed, coming face to face with the reality that no matter how much lush and luxury is poured on him, he will, in fact, inevitably suffering and death just like everybody else. This sends him on a retreat into the forest. He um, surges from that story as the Buddha with a statement, life is suffering. You may have heard that. Summarizing that the only means of escape is to break the ties of attachment that bind us to life. To find a spiritual retreat that we can go away to often to escape the suffering that we experience in this life. To shield us from it. And it's true. A detachment from suffering will in fact, through practice, keep you from feeling the pains that this world and life will bring to you. But it will also deprive you of some of the greatest joys. Striving desire deep attachment to creation and to other people it has the ability to bring a lot of pain in your life but it can also uncover a lot of treasure as well And so we don't want to detach ourselves from the suffering of this life so what do we do we lean into the third framework suffering with hope now there are many angles that we can take on this topic of suffering in a world ruled by an omnipotent God, a God who is all-knowing, all-powerful, and all-good. And whenever I speak of suffering, I'm referring to suffering in all shapes, suffering caused by human sins. Think of the atrocities and terror of 9-11. I'm talking about suffering that is the result of natural causes. Think of a child dying of cancer. And I recognize that In this room, there are a collection of sufferings that are unimaginable to me. And I don't want you to think that I'm naive to that. But what I want you to hear is that there is a way to navigate the pains and misfortunes in our life. And I would like to use the Bible and a story of Jesus to help us fully understand this framework of suffering with hope. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to John chapter 11. John chapter 11. John is a gospel written by one of Jesus's closest friends and one of the 12. He called John to follow him, and John witnessed many things that Jesus did, walking on water, feeding thousands of people with just a few items. He witnessed his death on a cross, and he witnessed him as a resurrected Savior. At the end of John's life, he took all of these stories together and wrote them down into what we now have as John, the Gospel of John. One of those stories is found in John chapter 11. You may be familiar with this story. It's a story of two sisters and a dead brother. And it starts off like this. Now, a certain man was ill. That man's name was Lazarus. He's from a village of Bethany. Now, Bethany is the village that two sisters are in, Mary and her sister Martha. Now, it was Mary, see he's just explaining the characters here, it was Mary, who if you don't remember, anointed Jesus' feet with ointment, and wiped it with her hair and with her tears. There's our characters, there's our situation. So the sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love, Lazarus, is ill. But when Jesus heard it, look what he says, this illness does not lead to death, It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So John, he kicks off this chapter telling us that Mary and Martha's brother, Lazarus, has gotten very sick. Lucky for them, they know the perfect person to call. Jesus has healed people before, and he's practically a friend and family member of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. He has a close connection. This is a no-brainer. But scroll your eyes down to verse 6. What happens when the, when the girls call on Jesus to come save their brother? Does he say, all right, disciples, load up the tents. Our buddies are sick. We got to go. We got to get there as fast as we can. Does he do that? No. What does he do? He says he stays put for two days. Okay. Not what we were expecting, but we know... That Jesus can heal from a distance. We've seen him do that before. Maybe this is one of those moments. But if you read the story, that doesn't happen either. Lazarus dies. Why will Jesus, at the plea of his friends, not save their brother Lazarus? This is the first reality we have to wrestle with as Christians. Sometimes... You will call on Jesus, and he will not come, at least not immediately. And that, that can shape you in many different ways, ways that you may not be expecting it to. It shaped author, theologian C.S. Lewis, author of Chronicles of Narnia, as he wrestled with this reality while also facing the death of his wife, who lost her battle to cancer. Here's how he put it into words. Not that I am, I think, in much danger of ceasing to believe in God. No, no, no. The real danger is coming to believe such dreadful things about him. The conclusion I dread is not so there's no God after all, but so this is what God is really like. Believing that God could do something And then he doesn't do that thing is like an extra lashing on your back in the midst of your suffering. Jesus could have come when the sisters called. He could have healed Lazarus at a great distance, but he chose to stay put. He chose to allow Lazarus to die. And that is because God is not at our beck and call. Nor does he live Or operate by the standards that we have established as morally right and true. And often it is in the midst of our suffering or our pride that we often think we could do a better job than God could. We could heal the right people and get rid of the wrong people. But I promise you, men and women have tried to be God before. And it has failed drastically. God is doing something here. And so we need to lean in closer and listen and pay attention. Because Jesus does arrive, except it's not until four days after Lazarus has been dead. Here's that first interaction with Jesus and Martha. I want you to just imagine the tension in this first interaction. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you would have been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. And Jesus responded, your brother will rise again. Martha stood where many Christians stand when faced with suffering. We have this ultimate hope, right? This faraway hope that one day all of our tears will be wiped away. That everybody who is a follower will be able to be at the in the same room at the footstool of God, that we will be in the presence of him, that all of our pain and suffering will eventually evaporate. But in the midst of your pain, we are so much more like children than we are philosophers, are we not? In the midst of your pain, it is real, it is urgent, and it refuses to be soothed by some faraway hope. Neat theological answers will not do When your mom is dying of cancer. Neat theological answers will not do when you file for bankruptcy. Neat theological answers will not do when your spouse comes in and asks you for a divorce. Whenever you get the bad news from a doctor. When planes crash into our towers and war begins between countries. But luckily a future hope is not all that Jesus offers. But notice, in our story, Jesus doesn't immediately fix Martha's problem either. No, instead, he changes the terms of the engagement. Here's what I mean. He looks at Martha in her tear-filled eyes, and he says, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me shall not die. Do you believe that, Martha? Now think about what is happening here, about the context of this conversation. Jesus is talking to Martha, who at this moment is still reeling from the death of her brother. And this isn't just jeopardizing her emotionally. This is jeopardizing Martha's entire lifestyle. Martha and Mary are two women that live in a world that is ruled by men, and their man of the household is now in the ground. They have nobody to defend her. Martha needs Lazarus back. And in the midst of her deepest grief and her deepest recognition, Jesus looks at her and tells her her greatest need is not to have her brother back. Her greatest need is standing right in front of her. Which is likely even more shocking than Jesus not arriving two days after her call. Jesus is not offering a good guideline for life. He is offering himself as life. Life in the face of suffering, life even in the face of death. Let me paint this out just a little bit further. As parents, we know that time to time we have to allow our kids to suffer. We hold our crying babies as strangers poke Needles into their unblemished skin to prevent them from a disease that they know nothing about and they're not suffering from in that moment. And as they look at us with eyes of betrayal, we grieve the fact that we can't tell them why this is happening. On an even grander scale, some parents have to allow doctors to feed them poison that makes them vomit and allows their hair to fall out for days and months and years for a hope to save their child's life. And those parents have to answer a question, the same question Jesus is offering to Martha, and the same question I am offering to you. What could possibly be worth it? And Jesus makes the flabbergasting claim that he is. And Martha responds with stunning faith. She says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. And Martha, she calls her sister Mary, and notice what Mary does immediately. She goes back to her original posture with Jesus the first time, and she falls at his feet. It's like immediately where she goes. And the Stoic teacher looks down at two women who are grieving the situation with their brother. I imagine Jesus is grieving, watching his friend suffer and having lost his own friend as well, Lazarus. And the Stoic teacher breaks down, and Luke gives us the shortest and one of the most profound verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Have you ever been comforted by somebody who didn't truly understand what you're going through? Yeah, it's often unsatisfying. We're grateful. We know that they might come from good intentions. We'll say, you know, thank you for your concern, but you really don't understand what I'm feeling. But Jesus is not some remote deity suffering at a safe distance. He is a God who inhabits and embodies our suffering. The prophet Isaiah calls the Messiah, the, son, the man of sorrows, who's very acquainted with grief. And Jesus often has sympathy towards those who are suffering. He, he continuously extends his mercy. But Jesus doesn't just care about your suffering. He carries your suffering. Isaiah 53, He was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. Pain and suffering are rolled up with sin and guilt, and they are all thrown on the back of Jesus, and He takes all of it to His death. He bears the lashes of our sin and guilt, and equally He carries our pain and suffering, and after it all, Jesus holds us close as we grieve, as we lament, as we weep, just as he wept. We know the end of the story, that all tears will be wiped away. But until then, in our pain, we find special intimacy with Jesus. Think of it this way. You can laugh with nearly anybody, nearly anybody but we only cry with those we're strongest with. Our suffering becomes their suffering. And Jesus is the only person who knows all of our heartaches, all of our pain, all of our sin. He was deserted by his closest friends. He was beaten by strangers. He was abandoned by his father. He was killed by his government. He knew the truth of the resurrection, but he still wept for Lazarus. He still begged God not to lead him to the cross, and he still cried out in agony for the abandonment as he was dying. Jesus truly did bear it all. The story's not over. Look how it ends. Then Jesus, deeply moved again, he came to the tomb. Now it was a cave, and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone." Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. It's too late. You were too late, Jesus. It's over. There's not a chance. How often do we say that? Do we cry out? It's too late. Jesus says, have you not been listening to me, Martha? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took the stone away, and Jesus lifted up his eyes. I love this prayer. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you sent me. Your prayers are not just for you. And then after saying these things, he cried out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, his face wrapped with cloth. And Jesus said, unbind him and let him go. I love this story. One small reason is because it reminds me of my future hope. That one day Jesus will call me out of the grave. That whenever that time comes, I won't be some disembodied spirit, but I will walk out with a resurrected life like Jesus and Lazarus before me. Another truth that this brings about are questions. Does it generate questions for you? Like if Jesus had planned to save and heal Lazarus, why did he allow him to die in the first place? Why did Mary and Martha have to experience the terror to suffer the way that they suffered? Why didn't Jesus just avoid this terrible moment entirely and given them what they wanted all along? And after a lot of thought, it hit me. is because it was in the space between Lazarus' death and Jesus calling him out that Martha sees Jesus for who he really is. Her entire life. We often see prayer as a means to an end. God as a divine vending machine that we cast prayers into and out pops our wishes. And if the machine holds back, we either kick it in frustration or we storm off the other direction. But Jesus is not a means to an end, Jesus is the end. All of Martha's circumstances. They led her to this moment with Jesus. And it's not that her suffering or our suffering doesn't matter. It matters so much that it brings tears to the eyes of the Son of God. But it matters like a first meeting matters in marriage or like birth matters in motherhood. It is the entry point into a relationship that is formed through suffering just as much as it is formed through joy. And if the goal of our existence, according to Jesus, is a relationship with Him, then finding Him in our suffering is the very point. Let's take this a step forward from the abstract or general frameworks of suffering. Let's speak more directly, because I don't want you to walk away feeling good for an hour or a day or even a week, because suffering is going to hit you like waves, in the ocean, throughout your entire life. You cannot avoid it, and so you need questions answered, and you need a hope that is anchored that will help you persevere. So you can hear it from me right now, a sentence that you're not gonna hear the world say, that you're not gonna hear somebody selling you say, that you're not gonna hear sitcoms say, suffering needs to be difficult. It needs to be painful so that you will seek something that is beyond it, beyond you, beyond your circumstances and what you can buy and what you can find for comfort. And whenever you encounter that wisdom, I like to call him Jesus, you must surrender to him to build your life around him, to live rightly with him at the center of everything that you are. So the one thing that I need you to understand about suffering is suffering is a sign that you must change some part of your life. Here's what I mean. I don't mean just thinking about changing. I don't mean about just assuming change will happen on its own. I mean changing out old habits that might be generating certain sufferings that you're experiencing. I mean having a mindset that's not set on your circumstances or the day or the moment, but mindset that's focused on Jesus. I'm talking about a life that's not centered on my bank account, or my job, or my status, or my frame of mind, or how I feel. But a life that's centered on Jesus. Seek change. Reorient the center of your life. Switch out unhealthy habits. There's so many ways to do this, and it all is different depending on where you are. What isn't different is that Jesus is in the center. We're going to land the plane on that center of our life here in a moment. First, I want to answer three quick questions, just so we hit it all before we close out on this topic of suffering. Three questions that people have. Number, question number one, is suffering a punishment for sin? Well, while sin and suffering are connected universally, they are not cause and effect. Now, it is true. Living in rebellion to God, wanting to be separated from God, means you are wanting to be separate from the source of everything that is good. And that will have results and consequences attached to it. But your life, the suffering of a person... It's not dependent on what they are doing. It's not a sign of a lack of faith in God. Jesus made this very clear in John chapter 9 with the man born blind. Why? Well, he wasn't born blind because of his parents' sin. He wasn't born blind because of his sin. He was born blind so that the glory of God could be seen through him. Kind of like our story with Lazarus. Question number two, if God does love us, he wouldn't intend for us to suffer then, would he? Well, that question crumbles on every page of the Bible, where you see and find a chosen and loved one of God who is suffering in some way. And then Jesus comes onto the scene and takes that to a cosmic scale. (laughs) God's beloved son the one who the Father was well pleased, Jesus comes expressly into the world to suffer and to die for the people he loved. And I get it. We don't desire suffering, but we cannot argue that God's love is going to shelter us from it. Because the linchpin of world's history is found in an innocent man dying a terrible death. And that is the lens we have to view our own life and our own pains Final and third question, well, then how do we end suffering? The short answer is you don't. We don't. Nor do we know when the end of the story will come. But your journey with Jesus through his pain and his suffering, taking up your cross, isn't the only journey with Jesus you have. You also have a journey into his resurrected life. And the journey of all central characters is through darkness. That is the human condition. There is no way to fully avoid it, nor should we try to avoid it. Instead, we listen to the words of a father who mourns his teenage son suffering brain damage in a sporting accident. He says this, people often think that the reality of suffering is an embarrassment to the Christian faith, but I think suffering is the greatest apologetic for Christianity that there is. So as Christians, we don't hide from the fact that suffering exists, nor do we try to detach ourselves from the experience of it. Suffering is not a peg against Christianity. No, it is the thread in which Christ's name is stitched into every one of our lives believing Jesus' sobering words to Martha, that he is, in fact, the resurrection and the life. That's not a one-time posture of mind that we find ourselves in. That is a daily battle of the heart. Wave after wave of suffering we experience, we put Jesus at the center of us. And the entire world, the entire world, is going to scream at you that anything... Anybody else needs to be the center of your life. It screams at me that the center of my life needs to be my comfort, my security, my finances, the newest things I have, the pristine yard I keep up with, the status I have, the job I can hold. It wants me to put people at the center of my life. Darian, my boys, the people who follow me on social media that I'm not even on anymore. We look to all of these things. We desire them to fill us up because they seem so tangible to this invisible God that tells us to crucify our desires and to put him at the center. I get it. Life is so tempting to put anything else in Jesus' place. And whenever you find yourself in that moment, I want you to recall Martha's story. Her heart yearned for her brother. His restoration was her life to her. And Jesus looked at her in the midst of her suffering, not after it, right in the middle of it. He looked her in the eyes and he said, Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe that? Sometimes I win the battle. Sometimes I lose. There are seasons when I feel the presence of God throbbing my meager heart. Other times I'm just holding on for dear life, not knowing when the end of the story will come. But ultimately, I must stake my claim on the truth that Jesus is the life, the only life that I need. Suffering, it's real, and it's temporary. Jesus is real, but he's eternal. And for that reason, that is where my heart, my soul, and my entire life can be found. Let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that suffering is a reality of the broken world that we live. God, we don't excuse it. God, we don't run from it. God, we don't detach ourselves from it. God, we embrace it. Because it is a reminder that the world is not as it should be. But that is why Jesus came. That I am not the way I should be. But that is why Jesus came. That all things might be restored. That there is an end of the story of hope. But there is restoration and transformation that happens today. But God, we have to put you at the center of our life. Not when life is good, not when we're on the mountaintop, but we, when we are in the midst of the valley, we trust the shepherd is leading us to the green pastures, to the running waters. That whenever our brother is in the tomb, and we are grieving and looking to a future hope, Jesus looks us in the eyes and says, I have to be your life. I have to be everything. Nothing can stand between me and you. Father, is in that moment when our life is truly centered on you that we find rescue from our suffering, that we find hope that we can grasp, that we find a way through it. God, I pray for anybody in this room who's experiencing suffering. God is going to continue to hit us, but we don't run, we embrace. And we do it through the hope and the life of Jesus our Savior. We say this prayer in the name of that Savior, and together the church said, Amen.